you then to turn to page 940, and if you're, you have to follow the numbers at the bottom of the page to do so, page 940, and we will read, I'll begin with the question, you'll respond with the answer if you would, of question 7, as we begin this series on the attributes of God, I would place before you the fact that perhaps uh, as adults, we might uh, do well to learn and to memorize uh, the question and answer seven from the larger catechism of the Westminster. And so uh, let's read that together this evening. What is God? So that's my challenge to you as adults, challenge to myself. Let's memorize that by the end of this series on the attributes of God. So that if anyone says, we, you know, what is God? We have a ready answer for them. But then let's also turn to page 968, 968. Because we also have a question and answer in the shorter catechism which was intended, by the way, for children. So that's why I draw the distinction. So this might be, for those of you who have uh, young children, uh, a good one as you're memorizing question and answer seven from the larger, it might be a good opportunity for you as parents to spend time teaching your children the answer that is found in the shorter catechism to question four. What is God? Now, there is no one singular passage in which all of that is found. It's not like we can turn to Isaiah 48 and look at the long list that we have here. No, that's a compilation of scriptural truth. And the first thing that we are told in both the larger catechism and the shorter catechism is that God is spirit. Let's go to a passage this evening, John chapter 4, that teaches exactly that. that that's, that's not just our, our idea of, as man. Well, how are we going to define what God is? Well, let's say God is spirit. Now, this is what God himself teaches us. The Gospel of John, chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And as he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, 
Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water of life that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. And when He comes... He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Our holy and merciful Father, we thank thee, Lord, for this opportunity to enter thy house again on this thy Sabbath day, Lord, and we open thy holy and precious word. And we hear thy word proclaimed through Pastor Bob. We pray that thou will be with him in that spirit. We pray that we will open our hearts and ears and hear that word and receive that word so that we may apply this to our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. So we want to look at three things from this particular passage this evening and this idea that is presented to us here in the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechism, but is also part of this larger sermon series then, The Attributes of God. First of all, God is spirit. What is the meaning of that? That's our first point, the meaning of spirit. When Jesus says, God is spirit, what does that mean? What does the word itself mean? Secondly, the uniqueness of his being. And thirdly, the worship that Jesus speaks of in spirit 
and in truth. First of all, then, the meaning of spirit. The Greek word that is used here is pneuma. If we were in the Old Testament, it would be rook. Uh, that's the word that's used back in Genesis 1 in the spirit of God. In the Hebrew, Baruch, but if it were translated into the Greek, we'd have the same word, pneuma, meaning breath, meaning wind, or as it is translated here, spirit. It's, we, we obviously kind of understand the root of this word because we in our society have this term pneumonia. Okay? It's a lung thing, it's an air thing, it's a breathing thing, right? When you get pneumonia, your uh, breathing is affected, your air is affected, right? That, that's the, the root of this word, pneuma, spirit. Right? So when, when we're, if we say, well, he's spirit, but what does that mean in the Greek? It means breath. Right? It, it, it means wind. Now, I'm going to tell you something that didn't take a lot of study, but this is pretty profound. John 4 follows John 3. Right? It took me weeks to come up with that one. Right? Now, John 4 does follow John 3. Why do I say that? Because what does Jesus do in John chapter 3? He's dealing with Nicodemus. And what does he talk to Nicodemus about? But the work of being born again and the work of the Spirit. And he compares that to what? The wind. That you cannot tell where it is. You cannot see it. You see the effects of it, but you never see wind itself. Now in chapter 4, it's kind of interesting, when he's dealing with this woman, this Samaritan woman, another person who is seeking, as was Nicodemus, Jesus, as he did with Nicodemus, brings her to the same place. This concept, this idea of breath, of wind, of spirit. Now there's a particular reason he's doing that with this Samaritan woman, uh, Lord willing, we'll get to at the end here, okay, uh, our third point, but it's there, okay? Don't, don't look past how these things flow, right? This, there's an interconnectedness between John 4 and Jesus declaring God is spirit and that which he has said about the work of the spirit in John chapter 3. But the second thing is, that would mean that. That when we make the statement that God is spirit, when Jesus makes that declaration here in John chapter 4, it means that God is absent of any material or physical body. God is absent of any material or physical body. This is what the larger and shorter catechism want us to get right in terms of our, our understanding or our definition of God. It is what Jesus wanted this Samaritan woman to know. It is what Jesus wants us to know. God is spirit. And we, and we, can't, we can't parse that down. We, we can't alter that. We can't change that. We can't say, but that's such a hard concept. It's much easier for me to picture God as a person. No, we cannot do it. 
You, you can't picture God as a person. You, you can't picture God as having material substance, of having a physical body. By definition, by Jesus' own definition, we cannot define the essence, the being of God in any physical or material terms. God is spirit. He is absent of a body or anything material or physical. Hence, okay, now there are four subpoints here, right? If you're following the outline. You have the second commandment. Do not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters of the earth. Don't make anything to in any way represent me, the, the being, the essence of God. Make no form, make no calf, which is what they're going to do in just a couple of chapters later, right, at Mount Sinai. Make, make, don't, don't do what the pagans do. Don't, don't conceive of God in any material or physical way. A commandment expressly there to tell us, to warn us, don't ever do that. Right? And, and I know the dilemma we then run into as parents. We run into it as grandparents. How do we explain God, right, to our five-year-old, to our four-year-old, to our three-year-old. Do you know what we tend to do? We compromise. We say, well, they're just little kids. Let's, let's tell them that he's like an old grandfather. No. We, we cannot do so. To place that thought, to place that idea in a child's mind. In our own mind is a violation of God's command. It's a violation of what Jesus has told us. God is spirit. He's not a being that looks like Santa Claus. He's not the drawing of Michelangelo that made, made of God in the top of the Sistine Chapel. That's not God. He doesn't have a big, long, gray beard. He doesn't have big, long, flowing gray locks of hair. God is spirit. Breath. Wind. This is the being of God. Go with me as well, because I know you know the second commandment. But go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Because we, we sort of get Moses' commentary on the second commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Because remember, Deuteronomy is now just before they're ready to enter the land. So the second commandment given at Sinai, now they've wandered for 40 years. Moses is now coming back to that and saying, okay, you're going to enter into this land. You're going to see all sorts of idols. You're going to see all sorts of idolatry. Okay, you're going to see all sorts of images. You're going to see Dagon gods of half man, half fish. Don't do it. Okay? Deuteronomy chapter 4, 15 and 16. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware 
lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars and all the host of heaven, you'll be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to the peoples under the whole earth. But the Lord has taken you out God is spirit. God is spirit. Or go with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. We again encounter the the words of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. Luke chapter 24. We're picking it up at verse... 36. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit... He's he's not giving this just, you know, for the sake of information. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Now, what did Jesus say in John chapter 4? God is spirit. What does that mean? God has no flesh. God has no bones. Jesus himself is defining what he meant when he says God is spirit. No flesh, no bones. Or we can go to the passage of 1 Timothy 1.17. That's why we sang the hymn we just sang, because that's a variation of that passage. The invisible God. That doesn't just mean that he's, he, he's hid in the sense of, well, if we could get past something, we could see him. No, he is invisible. Why is the word invisible used by Paul? Because he is wind, he is Breath, that is the being and essence of God. So when we think about these attributes of God, when we think about what is God, if we are going to worship God rightly, if we are going to give glory and honor to God, we have to understand rightly what God is. God is spirit. Yet, God, this this spirit, breath, wind, is relational. It's not inanimate. It's not unmoving, uncaring, and unloving. God is living. He is a living spirit. He is a living breath. He is living wind. But not only just living, it's active. It's not inanimate. He is an active being. He is an involved being. He is a being that does things. 
He is a being that makes things. He is a being that speaks. Though he is spirit. Without mouth, without lungs, without heart. And he is not impersonal. He is, he, it, it's not like, ooh, this is such mystery. This is, whoa, this is really hard. No, God is knowable. This wind, this breath, this spirit that God is, is knowable. He reveals himself. This being, God, reveals himself. He tells you who he is. Now, the problem God has is trying to explain to you and I who he is. Right? I mean, he knows who he is. (laughs) But for him, as God... In all his perfections, in all of his magnitude, to explain to you and I, right? Let me just give you an example. Some of us who are left-handed, we can't even figure out which way the nut turns on, right? Okay? And, oh, but we know God. It's like... We can figure out God on our own. We don't need him to tell us. It's sort of, yeah, that's not happening. Just think of all the limitations. If anything this year and a half has taught us, it's taught us how limited man's knowledge is. Right? Okay? I'm an expert in the field of communicable diseases, but I can't figure out if you should wear a mask or shouldn't wear one. Right? We can't figure out how to do anything because we are so limited as human beings. Our knowledge is so small, it's so finite. And here we are trying as mankind on our own to figure out an infinite God. So God comes and he says, here, let me help you. Let me reveal myself to you. Let me tell you who I am. And sometimes when God makes that revelation, the only way for God to communicate that in some way we might grasp, that we might lay hold of of some idea of the magnitude of God, he, He comes to us in language that you and I can understand. So he speaks in terms of his heart. He speaks in terms of his hand. He speaks in terms of his mind. Right? All of which we have made. Oh, so he is physical. No. He's just using that language because there is no other way for us to be able to grasp. Anything about his being. So he, he, he uses those terms to help you and I come alongside in some way in this revelation 
that we can get some sort of an idea as limited, as small, as tiny as our knowledge is of the greatness and the magnitude of the fact that God is spirit. A most holy, a most wise, a most loving, a most just being. But it's not just that he's impersonal. He isn't. Okay? That's why he reveals himself. He's not just some being that exists somewhere and the rest of us, we just got to, well, let's turn it over to the best thinkers we've got and let them kind of figure out God. And we'll listen to them. Let's turn it over to people who don't even believe in the existence of God to define for us what God is. No. God says, I, 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 I want to communicate to you who I am. I want to tell you who I am. Here's the revelation of who I am. Right here. But he also desires not only that we know him in that regard, he desires a relationship with us. God is spirit. And yet, as spirit, he desires not just that we know him, but that you and I are in a relationship with him. That's why we, we stress so much this word covenant. Because that's God's way of relationship. God relates to human beings. God relates to you and I. Every human being in this world is in some sort of relationship with God. Covenantal relationship. You're either in a covenantal relationship with God under that covenant of works under which you are under condemnation and judgment... Or you're in a covenant relationship with God under that covenant of grace in which we celebrate the giving of the Messiah, the giving of our Lord and Savior as the means by which we might know God. God is spirit. Think of all that Jesus is laying before this Samaritan woman. God is spirit. Woman, do, do, do you grasp that? Do you understand that? Do you lay hold of that? And, and we might well ask ourselves, Christian, it's limited. I, I mean, we, we can never grasp this fully. Right? This isn't something we're, we're going to score 100% on. You know, what, what does Paul say? Now we see in a mirror dimly. Right? This is always going to be dim to us on this side of glory. Right? That's why Paul's eager expectation, now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Right? I, I can only know and understand so much of God, about God, in this world. Because we are so limited by our own sin. 
We, we are limited by, by the veil that keeps us from fully knowing God. But yet, that which God does reveal, that which God does teach, this is what you and I are called on to believe. God is spirit. This is what Jesus wants, this Samaritan woman. This, this, this is not some person with some theological training that he's having some philosophical argument with. This is evangelism 101. First thing he throws out to her, God is spirit. Isn't that an awfully difficult concept to place before someone? Not according to Jesus. You better get the first thing right. If you start off on the wrong foot, it's only going to lead to further problems and difficulties. God is spirit. That's it. Accepted truth because it comes from the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. God is spirit. Second point, the uniqueness of his being. When we talk about the attributes of God, oftentimes in Reformed theology, I shouldn't just say, in theology, we divide those attributes into two categories. Okay, I'm going to press you. Who knows what the two categories are? Anybody? The communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God. Some that are conveyed to us that we share with God. Others that are God alone. I came across a quote, I believe it's by Burkhoff. A pretty noted Reformed theologian. Pretty solid guy I think most of us would agree on. Okay. Who said, you know, that's kind of a made-up category. You, you really can't take God's attributes and divide them in that way. Because everything that, that you put in the communicable, that you would say, oh, we share that with God. We share it in such a small amount. And yet even the things that we say, well, we don't share anything with God like that. Well, we actually do. God is spirit. Are we? Yes, we are spiritual beings. Now, we also happen to have material bodies. We also are flesh and blood. But we are also spirit. That's part of who we are. There is a small part of us, you see. There's an element in us, in our humanity, in being made in the image of God. That reflects that image. God placed within us as human beings. <laughs> that aspect. Now God is fully spirit. We are <laughs> in part spirit. But that's where we come to the second point. What makes God unique? Because, oh, stop and think about it. Are there other spiritual beings who are not material beings? Think, think. 
a creation of God that are spiritual beings only, non-material. Anybody think you got the answer? Angels, right? They have no physical being. They are spiritual beings too. But are angels then the same as God? <laughs> no. Is man the same as God because he has a spiritual aspect to him? No. What is the uniqueness of God's being? God as spirit, any attribute of God we could say, is this. It is infinite. It is infinite. The fact that God is spirit. He is a spirit infinitely. Even an angel has a specific entity. But God is not. God is not limited by anything. The best proof of that would be this. Angels are created beings. God is not. God as spirit is infinite. Not so an angel. Secondly, moving on that point, all of God's attributes are eternal. There is nothing else in creation that is eternal. There is nothing else in the universe. There is nothing else in existence. The only eternal being, thing, there is, is God. Nothing else has been forever except God. See, when you and I, see, we come back to this, right? You know, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Right now, in the midst of us, is this eternal spirit that has always existed. Having no physical features, having no material sustenance, nothing else. And that spirit is with us. He's here. I mean, when I think of this, that as the people of God, we worship together. And we come into the presence. And he comes in our presence. And then I think when we leave... He promises to never leave us or forsake us. See, it's no wonder the psalmist says, what can man do to me? <laughs> well, what can man do? The infinite, eternal. But here's another aspect of the uniqueness of God. He is unchangeable. I, Jehovah, change not. Do angels change? Yes, they did. 
right? We have the creation of angels. Some fall. They are changeable beings at one time. Are people changeable? <laughs> Thank God we are. Because we were the enemies of God, now we're the children of God. It's a good thing we're changeable. It's a good thing God can work with us. But the being of God is unchangeable. I, Jehovah, change not. On the other side of the, the outline, I've, I've kind of listed various texts. And, and that's sort of your homework for the week. Go home this week. Look up those passages under each point. So where it talks about the infinite, 1 Kings 8, 27, and so on. And you'll get an understanding of how God's word comes to bear on each one of these things. But I really want to get to this third part. Because Jesus says to this woman, if you're going to worship God, who is spirit, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. So what does Jesus mean by that? Right? Because this is sort of where all this theology now comes to bear for us here. This is sort of, he, he is giving her the application, but he gave her the application before he gave her the teaching. And that's where we have to come back to the fact of where we are. This was Jacob's well. It's in Sychar. If you remember when Ed Anderson was here, the day he gave the presentation, we had had the sermon on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And he had made reference to the fact during his presentation that Sychar is located right between those two mountains, probably where the ceremony was held. And the Samaritans had built a temple on Mount Gerizim. But as Samaritans, okay, they, they, they are not worshiping in truth. They are not worshiping according to the Old Testament. They're not, they're not worshiping according to, to what God said. Because God said, it's in Jerusalem that I'll put my name. It's in the temple where I will dwell. And the Samaritans are just... No, we're not paying any attention to that. They go off into wild tangents as far as the worship is concerned. So there's all sorts of strange things that have taken place at that temple in Mount Gerizim, which by this time is not there. It's no longer standing when Jesus is talking to this woman. But this woman is convinced that it's Mount Gerizim is, is where truth is found. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not found there. It's not in at Mount Gerizim. But what he's really telling her, because he goes on to say, there is a time coming, woman, when we will not worship either on this mountain or in Jerusalem. What's he mean? You folks are far too physical. You are far too limiting. You are not understanding that which is about to happen and the unleashing that is about to take place in Acts chapter 2 with the coming of the holy wind and the holy breath, the Holy Spirit. And that no longer is there going to be this limitation of place. 
No longer is there a specific place where God must be worshipped and everybody must go there. Everybody must journey to the one place in order to worship. Why? Because that would mean a limitation on God that God says no longer is. God can be worshipped wherever we are. You can gather in a five and dime. Some of you don't know what that is. You could gather in a Walmart. And where two or three are gathered in my name, there will I be in the midst. Why? Because God is not some physical entity tied to some Ark of the Covenant. Tied to something material and physical. Why? Because God is spirit. And as spirit, he is infinite. He is eternal. And so the God who gathers with us here is gathering with another group under a tree in Uganda. He's gathering with a group of our brothers and sisters under a tin roof in Haiti. He's gathering with two or three brothers in a prison. He's gathering with a group of farmers that have cut out a small area of hiding in India. Why? Because God is spirit. He is infinite as that spirit. And so when we worship, we cannot worship in the sense where we're going to limit God, where we're going to confine God, where we're going to put God in our holy box, in our little confines. We have to understand that when we worship, we are worshiping the infinite spirit. The eternal one. God is spirit. But Jesus then also draws her into this. But you must. But you must worship through the one who comes through the Jews. You must worship the one who is the Messiah. Oh, I know he's coming. I, who speak to you, am he. That's why Jesus is going to say in John chapter 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Yes, this infinite spirit can be worshipped anywhere, but he can only be worshipped through Jesus Christ. Muslim is not worshiping God. A Hindu is not worshiping God. A Buddhist is not worshiping God. A Jehovah's Witness is not worshiping God. A Mormon is not worshiping God. Because you can only worship 
the one who is spirit through Jesus Christ. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. And 